0: Lord, we ask that you illuminate your word. Illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit so that we may know and understand what you have for us, Lord. Take your word and put it deep in our heart and help us, Lord. Help us towards righteous living at all times. And we lift this time up to you, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen. So, I'm going to start with four short stories. And uh, I know I'm making it tough on the crew back there. But I'm going to start with four short stories before I get into the meat of Psalm 139. So the first one... It is set nearly 70 years ago, and a young woman named Catherine, who was at that time about 23 years old, grew up in a small town, a solid family, and was attending nursing school. And while she was in nursing school, she became engaged to the love of her life. So her fiancé entered the military and was stationed in Fort Lewis. When Catherine completed nursing school, she moved out west and to Tacoma and started working. She worked as a surgical nurse and had great plans to be married in the very near future. But during that time, there was, ai will say, a moment of weakness. That's the most diplomatic way to say it. A child was conceived. At this point, once the child was conceived out of wedlock, her father, Catherine's father, considered her trash. And to compound it, her fiance abandoned her. Now, this was quite a while before Roe versus Wade made. Abortion legal. But the doctors she worked with were willing to perform an abortion for her. So now Catherine's life is in the pit. It's a time of despair. So what should she do? Now, story number two. A lady named Viola, who, I'll say this parenthetically here, the names have been changed to protect the innocent but viola was not a beautiful woman by the world standards still she was kind and she was a teacher and took a great interest in her students but viola's husband repeatedly made it clear that she was so very ugly She should be thankful anyone, especially him, married her in the first place. Now, story number three. A man named Fred was involved in a tragic accident, resulted in a death. Now, another man, whom I'm naming Doug, was not involved at all. He wasn't impacted at all by this accident, and yet... This man, Doug, declared unequivocally that Fred's every breath was a waste of perfectly good oxygen. And to compound that, he believed, Doug believed, that the only way justice would be served is if Fred took his own life. And story number four is a woman named Debbie. When she was younger... She, went, she wanted to go to college and become a medical professional. And like many medical programs, it's competitive. There's lots of applicants, but only a few are chosen. Debbie was told she should not do that because she would be taking the place of a man. You see, The thought was the man would be the primary breadwinner, while Debbie would simply get married, have children, and leave her profession. In other words, the advice was saying that she would waste another man's training. So these four stories might strike a chord with you in some way or another. And these stories describe in some way... Situations people deal with every day. The Circumstances are different, the contexts are different, but they all involve really a singular moral issue. So have you dealt with abandonment? How about insults? Hatred? Have you been marginalized? People seeking vengeance against you. See, these are examples of how people can diminish another person's value. And it happens so often. And I think, I'll say sadly, it happens in the church. And I think it's an issue we face fairly regularly. So I'm going to ask have you, have you experienced su- such degradation as that? But more importantly, have you participated in such degradation as that? Now this was a this was a hard psalm for me to research and think about because I had to ask that of myself and I realized to my own shame that I had participated in that sort of thing in the past. And I had to admit that. I had to admit that that was to my shame. So let's, at this point now, talk about significance. Significance is the quality of having considerable meaning. There we go. So where does your significance lie? Do you feel your significance is in your job? How about your money? You've got enough money, you can't, don't know what to do with it all. Or how about your status within the community? Because, well, after all, I've got a building named after me, or I've got a scholarship named after me. How about your abilities? How about your strengths? Maybe it's your collection of stamps. I don't know what gives you significance, but I have to say that I'm glad Christians are immune from such things. <laughs> 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 You understand that's not correct. Christians have such things. Because you see, Christians can come along and say, my knowledge of the Bible is so much greater than yours. And place your significance in that. Or you can say, of course, my faith far exceeds yours. See what I've done? Or you may say, God is so blessed, so blessed to have me on his team. (laughs) Well, I don't think so. And so you see, your life is significant, but not for any of those reasons. The sanctity of human life, the significance of human life, is all throughout Scripture. And David clearly is stating this in Psalm 139. So let's dive into this. As a continuation of what the children learned in VBS, they talked about this. And in fact, that little poster over there has Psalm 139.14 on the license plate. So the ki- children were learning about this. Now, sanctity, that just simply means that has a sacred origin. We're talking about holiness, and purity something that is held sacred and human life is sacred and it's sacred not because we exist not not on that simple fact not because somebody has mandated it by law but the ultimate quality of our the ultimate quality of our meaning is in God himself and where else to look but Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 to get the impact of this. Now in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through about 25, we didn't exist before that time. We had no being in and of ourselves. We had no rights. We had no laws. We had nothing because we were nothing. But God in his holy scriptures has spoken. and He He, God, has revealed who we are. Genesis 1, verse 27, says that so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's just simply wonderful that our triune, tripartite God would state it three times. And the purpose of that is that we don't miss the point. Because we're created in the image of God, we are significant to God. And we need to understand this. And David clearly understood that. So in verses 13 to 18, David acknowledges God's hand in all of his days, from his formation in the womb to his death. Verse 13, David is saying that you, God, formed my inward parts, you, God, knit me together. Now, verse 14 is actually more significant than it might seem. It's almost stunning when you look at the words. It says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. Now, the Hebrew word fearfully generally generally means fearfully to fear, to respect, to reverence. But since God fears nothing, it's the idea of God reverently making us. It's deliberate, it's careful, and it's with profound love. Now the Hebrew word translated wonderfully describes being wonderfully and amazingly constructed. But in common usage, the word describes something that is distinct, separate, and different. So you put that together and you realize that God reverently made every one of you a distinct person unlike anyone else. And of course, the second half of the verse acknowledges that God's creative work is far beyond our comprehension. We will never understand it. And yet, your souls know that you are God's creation. A way to look at this is to take artists, uh, like Michelangelo, Rembrandt, those artists like that, and you can look at their work of, works of art and see that they are deliberate and careful, and they're amazing. It's nothing that... I can do. It's amazing. And yet, no two of their works are the same. And yet, wouldn't we say that even though they're not the same, they're both masterpieces? They're all masterpieces? When we look at the mountains and the ocean, beaches, forests, a sunrise, a sunset, the stars in the sky, we can be moved, we can be moved emotionally at the marvel of the beauty that only God could create. And yet, I'm going to claim to you that the mother's womb is where God does his most creative and amazing and beautiful work. Got opinions coming from. (laughs) You and I are God's artistic design. Verse 15 David acknowledges that you, God, saw me within the womb as I was being woven together. So I hope you're seeing here that God doesn't say any of this about other creatures. Okay? We don't see anywhere in scripture that a cow is created in the image of God. They may be tasty, but they're not created in the image of God. And a worm is not created in the image of God. Now, the first half of verse 60, and I'm moving on here, the Hebrew word for unformed substance is generally defined to mean the early stages of fetal development. That's generally what it means. But this Hebrew word is only used once in Scripture. And I can see here that it goes beyond the fetal development. I think from a broader perspective, we need to look at it as including my emotional makeup, my personality, my talents. None of those take a form. You know, you, you, know, you just can't you know, amputate something and my you know, emotional makeup is gone. So God expresses his glory by giving us all different talents, abilities, and gifts. See, we're more than just flesh. Don't we have a spirit and a soul? Uh, one way to look at it of how we're all different but part of the same team is to realize that, you know, a football team, you know, everyone on a football team is important to the team. But we know that a defensive lineman is not a quarterback. And we also know that not everyone on the team serves on the playing field. Because One person may be called to throw the ball. Another might be called to clean the ball. But they're all serving the same team. So God has placed talents and abilities within you for both our good and His glory. And I'll tell you that God's calling for you was decreed before you were born. When you look at Jeremiah 1... Verse 5, the Lord speaking says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, we're not all prophets, but God has decreed your calling before you were born. And you have to let that sit in there. God has decreed your calling. He has a calling for you. The problem is sometimes we don't listen to the call. In the second half of verse 16, again, is very wonderful. It talks about, in your book were written every one of them, that is, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So, when we look at the significance and sanctity of life, we have to realize that it is important that Our physical life may have begun at conception, but God had laid out all your days long before then. And a tough thing sometimes to accept, but it's the reality, is that whether a life is one hour or one century, its span is by God's design and will. I know that uh, at this point in time in my life, I realize I'm not going to live one second beyond the days God has decreed for me. And verse 18, the second half of verse 18, talks about every every morning he wakes up, God is still there. I think it's similar to, well, it's kind of like I think what Mike Jones always tells us, that When he wakes up in the morning, it's, here I am, Lord, reporting for duty, and that's what we should be doing. All people are God's image bearers, and we are all significant to God. But I know we don't represent God well. After all, we're sinners. But the importance of being created in the image of God did not go away. When Adam and Eve sinned, it didn't go away. It was still there. And God explicitly forbids the taking of another person's life. Think of the Ten Commandments. Think of Genesis 9, verse 6, where God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God created man in his own image. Now, some precise people... I just want to parenthetically say, I'm not talking about the rights under the judicial system for capital punishment, and I'm not talking about military actions. I'm just t- simply talking about you and me. And we have to realize that if we attack another person, we are attacking God. Each individual life should be protected, not taken. Each individual human life, even those in the womb, which is so hard to say in this culture today. But that's true. Even the life in the womb is worth protecting. Now, Scripture tells us that childbearing is a blessing from God. A blessing. But Satan, Satan has deceived the world into thinking childbearing can ruin your life. Don't we hear that all the time? It's part of news articles. Our lives will be ruined. Imagine that. So the world has assumed the status of God, and therefore now it judges who is significant and who is not. They don't consider God in it. We're going to decide, the world is going to decide who is significant and who is not. And we've seen this throughout history. This is not a new thing. All throughout history, we have seen exploitation, abortion, infanticide, genocide, euthanasia. And ethnic cleansing. We've seen all that. So, when we realize where our significance truly lies, how could any one of us believe that we are of greater value than anybody else? But I see it in social media posts, and I see it from people purporting to be Christian. Saying things that just kind of drive me nuts. You know, they find fault, but overlook the good. It's easy to express disdain without knowing any context. Oh, it's so easy to express hatred over such trivial matters. And of course, it's so easy to put targets on people's back. So these are tough questions for us. What do you do? When certain people come to mind, and I'll say certain people in a negative context, when they come to mind, do you pray for their destruction? Or do you pray for their salvation? Do you, pr- do you pray God's wrath upon them? Or do you pray God's forgiveness for them? <clears throat> and I find this particularly hard personally. I'm with you on this. Because I see political ads, and you just, you just watch it all the time now. Political ads and news articles. And they glorify sin and call righteousness evil. And sometimes, I guess, if God gave me the option, I'd be calling fire down from heaven. But that's... <laughs> Gladly he hasn't given me that uh, option. <clears throat> so. Early on, when I asked you about Catherine, I asked you, what should she do? So I'm going to tell you what she did. She chose life, and she loved that child so much that she was willing, willing to suffer indignation and embarrassment, because after all, her body would display her sin for months. Remember, this was a day, this was a day in the 50s, and so a little different context than what we have today, but her body would display her sin for months. And I would say, plus, in a great act of love, Catherine arranged for the child to be adopted. Now I want to take a little parenthetical thought here and add that I've heard some people say that their adoption, those are people that have been adopted, say that their adoption proves that their mother did not love them. That's not true. If you think this, break those chains, because you couldn't be further from the truth. I'm certain your mother loved you, if for no other reason then abortion was so convenient. But they chose not to. But I also see God's hand can be in it, and God can influence, because God loves you. So some of you know the rest of the story. Some of you probably figured out the rest of the story. But I'm Catherine's child. So when we, get, uh, when we look at significance, we have to realize that Satan and the world have turned something sacred and turned it around into a weapon. You see, we're constantly seeing attacks on other people's significance. You know, uh, you're just not pretty enough. No, no, you're not athletic enough. You're not smart enough. You're so stupid. What a fool. What a loser. And, Let's not forget how often people like to gossip. Frankly, is it any surprise that teen suicide continues to rise? Because there's a false standard of significance? They don't see God, they just see the world? Is it any surprise families are torn apart? Now, while I was preparing this, I read an article, and it's about mass shooters, written by a terrorism researcher. Now, the author believes that mass shooters pervert a universal desire to make a difference in the world. Now, we often think mass shooters are mentally ill, but that's too simple, too simplistic. Instead, this author believes that it is a universal human quest for significance and respect. And he calls this quest for significance and respect the mother of all motives. So mass shooters seek shortcuts to fame and glory. Those mass shooters, if, if you read about the recent assassination in Japan you saw this, you heard this, that this shooter identified a villain or a scheme or a conspiracy that threatened them. And of course, in this perceived danger, there's got to be brave heroes willing to sacrifice all for that cause. Now, in the world we live in, that's sounds exactly like the plot of almost every action movie we, we see. Somebody has been some threat, and somebody goes out to deal with it. Well, I couldn't find any reason to disagree with this author. The world has defined what makes us significant, but we must always remember that they are dead wrong, and they are eternally wrong. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, reminds us Satan is a great dragon, but he will be thrown down. He's that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The whole world. Not just part of it. The whole world. And Romans 1, verse 25 tells that the world has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped cre- and, and served the creature rather than the creator. So what we have here is that humans, we humans, decide who is worthy of life and who is not. We humans decide who is significant and who is not. So, I'm going to claim to you here that as a result of this, the world has damned people to despair, telling people that they're no more important than a piece of lint or a bottle cap. They're just not important. And so, people are in despair. Despair. We have to realize in Psalm 139 that David was about 30 years old when he wrote this. But he had already experienced a lot of despair in his life. He had already been through the valley of the shadow of death. He had King Saul coming after him, trying to kill him with a spear. King Saul came after him again, and he had to escape out the window of his own home. David and his men stop in Nob, and are communing with the priests. Saul finds out about it later, goes to Nob and slaughters all the priests. Do you think that had an impact on David? Or how about when the Amalekites raided Ziklag? Ziklag is where David and his men and all the families lived. And the Amalekites took all the women captive. Now it says in Scripture that David wept until there was no strength within him. And to compound the despair, the people talked of stoning him. So we should listen to Psalm 139 because David gives us insight when we have to deal with despair. Because when you're When you look at Psalm 139, you see, you know, God is there. When you despair, do you think God has abandoned you? When you sin, do you want to flee from God? So verse 7, David acknowledges that God has not abandoned him, nor can David flee from him. And then verses 8 and 9 describe that there's nowhere, to the left, to the right, up, down, where God cannot be found. In other words, omnipresence. And in verses 10 to 12, David speaks of the night encompassing him. Now the Hebrew word there literally means night or midnight. But here David is using the word figuratively to describe the darkest gloom and despair that sometimes engulfs the human heart. But David sees in those times that God is still there with him. God is there to give him spiritual guidance. God is there to hold fast onto him. God is not going to let go of him. But I, you know, I, I know that some of you despair, and I know it's real. But for Psalm 139, then, if we take a step back in a broader context, we realize that God's searching of your soul is central. Because searching is the front and back covers of this little book called Psalm 139. God, you searched me. God, please search me. Now, I hope uh, when you read Scripture, you ask questions. Even simple questions. But is it silly to ask why verses 13 to 18 follow verses 1 to 12? Is it, it's not silly to ask, but do you ask such, even such simple things? Because verse 13 begins with a very significant participle, translated for. It's a why. It's a because. So when you look at Psalm 19, you will see... that when you're in times of despair, you need to know what David knew. And David knew four things. God knows you completely. God will guide your steps and not forsake you. And God is ever-present for you. And God will never leave you, even in your darkest hour. And that little participle 4, covering verses 13 to 18. Why? Because God made you in His image for a purpose. There's times of despair, but God has made me in His image for a purpose. And I certainly hope that encourages you. Because even in the here and now... David knew that back then, and Jesus had to remind his disciples when he told them that I am with you always to the end of the age. And he told told them that before they had any idea of what was coming down the pike. They had no idea what was coming, but Jesus is going to be with them to the end of the age. And in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul is dealing with persecution and suffering in the church. And Paul assures us that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Jesus is with you in your darkest hour. But Satan, on the other hand, is a defeated foe. But I want to say to you, do not let Satan win the day. Do not. Do not let Satan win the day and turn your despair into defeat. See, don't let your despair turn into rage. Don't let your despair turn into hate. Don't let your despair turn into sin. So what are the next steps? As we conclude, Psalm 139. You see, we have all failed at some time. I can do the next one. There we go. We've all failed at some time, and all of us have made poor choices. And I know some of these choices seem unforgivable. But don't be a slave to... to guilt and shame. Remember, repent, ask for forgiveness. There is no sin a believer can do that God cannot forgive. And that is good news. I know you're significant. I know you, all of you, <clears throat> are significant to God. How do I know? It's actually quite simple. One word, gospel, the gospel is the pinnacle of God's love. And I'll tell you, God would not have a redemptive plan for us if we were not significant to him. Did I hear an amen somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> okay. See, the gospel offers a pardon to those who are dead in the trespasses and sin. But we shouldn't forget... That you're not just saved from the wrath of God, but you are also transformed by the Holy Spirit. And that transformation changes everything in your life. And so therefore, the gospel offers power to those who believe. The transforming power of God will both guide you away from harmful ways and will keep you and help you endure hardship. See, Jesus died because... He loves you. Now, continuing on in Psalm 139, I do want to say that verses 19 to 22 can be problematic for people. David has moved from what seems like really noble ideas and principles, and the language almost sounds vitriolic. And there's not enough time to properly deal with it this morning. But it's clear that those who, there are those, imagine this, there are those in the world who hate God's righteousness. And David acknowledges that he, in return, in response, hates those people also. But he does say that it's with a perfect hatred. Some translations say perfect, some say complete. There's uh, various English words used for that. But the word translated hatred describes a simple principle that God's people are not to become allied with the world, with those that hate the Lord. So we see here in Psalm 139 that in in verses 13 to 18, he has acknowledged that he has been made in the image of God. In verses 19 to 22, David has acknowledged that he's moral, a moral being. So in verses 19 to 22, re- really, it's just a simple question. The real question is, whose side are you on? That's all it is. Whose side are you on? God's or the world? Hmm? Righteousness or sin? So what should we do? Well, we should do as David did. And in 139, David ends with two prayers. So his first prayer, that David prayed that God will not give him over to judgment. And I think we can all easily pray that, Lord. Please don't turn me over to judgment. Because there's a real danger to us that if we don't, that we don't remain diligent. It's a danger that we must resist the world's logic and the schemes of the devil. And we must hold firm unto God's word. And in verse 23 then, David asked God to lay bare, that's what he's saying here, search me, is to lay bare the true state of his soul. David is asking God He's petitioning God to scrutinize him. So why does God uh, sorry, why does David want God to lay him bare? And I think more importantly for us is why would we want God to lay us bare? Well, David answers that in verse 24. Why should we want God to lay us bare? Number one. So, the Lord will show me any harmful ways in my life. Lord, am I harming my fellow image bearers? Lord, am I diminishing the worth of other people? Lord, am I driving someone to despair? Why should we want God to lay us bare? Second answer. So God will lead us down the path of obedience. Lord, show me the pathway of real life. Lord, show me the pattern of righteous living. Lord, help me treat everyone else as more important than myself. So I just want to end by saying that Psalm 139 is so very practical for us today. And I can... And I can say to you that, as another way of saying that, is that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned Psalm 139 because we needed to know this. So, do you doubt your significance to God? Well, I hope you don't. You shouldn't, because you are significant to God, and you are relevant. Okay. <laughs> that was definitely not as cheerful as VBS. <laughs> you know, after all that, that Tom said, I really felt like I was going to come up here and just be a stick in the mud. It, maybe I was. Anyway, let's go before the Lord here. Oh. <clears throat> Well, Lord, thank you for your word. There are some days we need to be reminded of who we are and our place in your creation. So, Lord, may we take your word and make it part of our daily life and part of our heart. And, Lord, may we uh, seek you every day, every day, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.